0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Amy Holdsworth about "On Living with Television." So, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, so, this is a wonderful book that really tries to think about um, the role of television in, in contemporary life. Both in, I think, in terms of um, television in. Um, your life but also you know kind of more broadly in people's everyday practices and their everyday lives and, and I guess the place to start when we're thinking about the story that the book is trying to tell and, and the kind of ideas the book is putting forward is with the approach the book has got and the book adopts a kind of autoethnographic and autobiographical approach to understanding television and I'm intrigued to hear really why you you chose that approach and and, and why that's the kind of Uh, The framework that the book adopts to tell the story of this object that, as you say in the book, has kind of always been there in in your life and, and, and in the life of many other people as well.
1: Sure. I mean, one of the things that I've, I've always been really interested in, in in television and the experience of being a television viewer, but also being a television studies scholar, were those kind of characteristics of the medium that get written a lot about, particularly in early television theory, um, the kind of experiences of intimacy and familiarity and repetition and duration, those kind of long term relationships and engagements that we have with television so really the kind of autobiographical approach was thinking about that that long-term relationship and how how do you capture that how do you get at that relationship and get at those characteristics in our writing and research about television so obviously you could you could take a kind of audience studies approach or a kind of longitudinal study but that often requires you know time and money. Um, so I thought about sort of turning it inwards a bit. And because my previous work had been around kind of memory and nostalgia, I thought, well, what what if we used the life story um, and life storytelling devices through which to think about those entanglements of, of television with the everyday and particularly within a kind of domestic contexts. So that was kind of, I think, where, where the book really began. And I always joke that I was going to call it my life with television, but that sounded a bit like a, a kind of NAF celebrity memoir. So we went for the slightly more academic sounding on living with television.
0: I mean, there is it is worth saying, you know, as as much as it's a kind of autobiographical story, there is quite a lot of, um, I guess, kind of engagement with not not just television studies theory, but a range of different uh, social and kind of philosophical. Uh, approaches And, and and this is really clear actually you mentioned duration um but it's it's really clear with the importance of time in the book um both in terms of how you analyze particular television programs and their use of time but also because time kind of runs right throughout the book in terms of uh the time of uh like a lifespan the time of everyday practices as we'll talk about later you know the kind of Moments in, in in particular parts of the day as well. So why was time kind of important to the book? And I suppose why why is time one of the kind of big uh, theoretical uh, concepts that you're engaging with and dealing with?
1: I think sort of questions around kind of television's temporalities are always bound up with thinking about its textualities as well as a, a kind of narrative form um, and a kind of affective realm as well. So time. It's obviously really interesting for things like the characteristics of repetition and seriality that I know has been um, a, a lot of people very interested in television seriality of late. Um, but I think it was also about a recognition of change and continuity as well, that, that um, as a kind of somebody growing up with television, recognising that the, the scholar themselves are not always in the same place that our lives are kind of can be fluid and um, can be subject to all sorts of transitions. So I think time was interesting for me as well, in, again, in relation to life storytelling and thinking about the significance of age and generation for the Television Studies scholar. Um, so for me, television has always been there, but for, for older scholars it was new, it was a novelty. For younger scholars, they'll be much more for, you know, having grown up with kind of digital TV. So I think it was a recognition of, of thinking about the the scholar as well and the identity of the scholar. Um, you know, so there's a, a lot of writing out there about television in transition and the way it's changed over the years. Um, but perhaps not as much that thinks about the durational experiences of the viewer, you know, as also in constant transition, you know, whether that's, you know, as, as a child, then as a teenager, an adult, a parent, whether they're single, whether they're married, whether they live alone, whether they live with other people and, and how those, but also how those identities are constantly layering and changing as well. So um, I think that was one of, one of the ways in which I became quite interested in thinking about specifically about time and temporality in relation to TV.
0: I mean, a, a really perfect example of that uh, question of where television fits in with, with the scholar's uh, life and, and I guess the kind of the life course as well comes in, in the first substantive chapter of the book where you tell uh, the story of, of Alice, your sister's life, and the importance of, of Disney videos w- within that. Um, and I'm interested to, to kind of get a sense of how the understanding about uh, the role of time, temporality, television um, re- really kind of um, plays out with Alice's story. And, and I guess in particular, the kind of ideas you, you've touched on already, things like, you know, the kind of repetition uh, of particular um, examples from Disney, you know, um, the kind of the role of, of, of uh, television within both Alice's and your kind of everyday life growing
1: up Mm -hmm. yeah so alice alice is my younger sister um, and alice had um something called Rett syndrome which is a a rare um neurodevelopmental um disorder to use medical language and that only affects girls um and um alice wasn't diagnosed until she was five or six so um when alice was born she was a very um, normal in inverted commas, um, happy wee thing. And, but at about 18 months, she started to lose some of the, um, skills that she'd started to develop. Um, and then there were, there were issues around her kind of cognitive and physical development. Um, and a whole host of other, um, kind of symptoms that, that came with, what came with the syndrome. So. In a way, that, that Alice's experience of, of disability and living with a disability was also something that really, I suppose, troubles or problematizes some of those assumptions about the linearity of time. So, whilst I've just in, you know, in, in my previous answer just kind of referred to as a scholar growing up in, in quite a normative way, you know, from child to teenager to adult. Um, you know, Alice's life was very was very different in that regard because of because of the the disability she experienced. So, she didn't grow up in in that kind of normal way. And again, I'm stressing normal there in in kind of inverted commas. So her story kind of really w- was quite revealing, I think, of the ways in which we can challenge those models of development and growth. And certainly in the book, I use um, work from queer studies and disability studies and kind of feminist ethics of care to, to challenge some of those ideas around the kind of autonomous individual self and to think about how um, our family's experiences of disability and uh, of a developmental disability in, in particular kind of challenges, challenge that kind of normative script of a kind of ages and stages approach to growth. And really, I think what what became clear to me was thinking about Alice's use of Disney as well was something that was also um You know, it wasn't linear. It was very repetitive in the way she would and the way our family would use um, Disney in, in our kind of everyday practices of care, but also over the kind of duration of Alice's lifetime as well. So one of the kind of frameworks of the book is about thinking about television both in time, in those kind of everyday practices, alongside thinking about it across um, a period of time and using the kind of life story or the lifespan in which to think about that. So and I think Disney's really fascinating in this regard, I think, because it's, it's um, if you think about all the kind of cycles and remakes and um repeats and video releases and the renaissances that Disney is constantly going through. Um, you know, the most recent one being the kind of um live action remakes of of its kind of renaissance period films. Um, that I think there are these textual and temporal loops within the world of Disney in its kind of cycles of generational inheritance in particular that I kind of recognize in the ways in which our family used Disney and, and what what Disney means to to my family as well over time. So it was a really um, th- I've always wanted to write about Alice and her relationship to Disney because it was such an important resource for us as a family and something that she would she would watch endlessly and, and and often a source of real frustration and um discomfort for myself and my older sister who were who were sick of watching various films over and over again but there were so many joys uh, and pleasures in her um spectatorship of disney as well that, that i that i thought was really important to um to 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 tell the world about it and to to value her experiences as a as a as a you know, a television viewer, Um, particularly when we live in a world where children with disabilities are quite often invisible, um, are quite often objects of pity or tragedy rather than seeing them as individuals that have access to a whole cultural and emotional life. So that was really important for me to try and get that across
0: as well. These themes, I think, of the um, importance of time, repetition, um, and the kind of the focus on the everyday come through in, in another, um, I guess, uh, I suppose it's formally children's television. But actually, the way, the way you write about it in the book is, is more as a kind of family um, television, including um, adults as well, which is this series, In the Night Garden. And some of our listeners might not be familiar with uh, In the Night Garden. I don't know the extent to which it has a kind of broad sort of international kind of hit status i know other um british children's television things have been really big in terms of stuff like peppa pig um it seems to be a kind of like global hit um and i don't know the extent to which in the night garden has done that as well but what is this show and and, and particularly I, I guess you developed this term this idea of it being kind of useful television um as part of, of daily caring routines um so it'd be interesting to, to hear more i guess about both of those things
1: yeah, so I guess as I was beginning to, to formulate the ideas for the book, obviously, mine and Alice's experiences were really central there for thinking about how television operates within kind of scenes and sites of care within the home um, and sort of practices of caregiving and care receiving too. So. Alice has presented one particular kind of way in which to, to kind of get at those kind of caring relations that circulate around how we use television. But really, I think In the Night Garden was really where the book properly began, um, encountering it as an aunt to a, a young niece and nephew. Um, the show itself was is made by the people behind Teletubbies and has does have a kind of international presence, but it was really kind of created to respond to a particular, I suppose, potential problem within the kind of domestic environment, which was the kind of children's bedtimes, and how the programme makers recognised that this could actually be a point of real anxiety for young children and for carers as well, you know, the difficulties of trying to get children to go to bed and go to sleep. So it was really designed for that kind of particular purpose. So I think for me, it was a really fantastic example through which to explore, again, those kinds of um, textual manifestations on television of the way in which television is kind of woven into the patterns and the routines and the rituals um, of everyday life. And obviously through this very specific example of of the the children's bedtime, the the show... um, obviously also fits into those kind of in, intergenerational rituals and traditions. You know, the bedtime story and the, the CBBS bedtime story, you know, is obviously really key as well to the bedtime hour on CBBS, which in the night garden is also a part of. You know, they often now get celebrities reading um, CBB's bedtime story, and um, people like Tom Hardy or Chris Evans, you know, have been really high-profile um, A-list celebrities coming in to read um, to their bedtime story, and I think they're really interesting examples as well of the the kind that kind of intergenerational appeal um, of of the the kind of bedtime hour that. Obviously the kid, a sort of 18-month-old child isn't going to know who Tom Hardy is, so why has he been recruited to read the story? It's often there for the um, you know, often there for the mums um or the aunts. Um so I think I think it's a really interesting way in which to explore um again those kind of scenes and sites of of intergenerational care within the home and the role that television plays in those. But also, and then looking at a specific kind of domestic practice, you know, going to bed, going to sleep, and and again, how how television is kind of folded in into that practice in a very specific and a very deliberate, and I would argue, effective way.
0: If that's a kind of story of how television is, I guess, used uh, as well as you know enjoyed, watched, and experienced, there's also a slightly you know very different, but you know, slightly familiar. Um, story of how television is used uh, as part of kind of everyday eating practices and um, I was fascinated by both you know your, your kind of choice of talking about eating with the television on which is you know a kind of standard sort of trope in a lot of popular culture um, but it's also you know a kind of a site of conflict in, 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 in many different ways you know in, in terms of things like class conflicts around um, watching television and eating at the same time. But your choice of examples is really fascinating here because, um, you know, th- there's various kind of representations of eating on television that, that we could talk about in terms of watching families, you know, maybe something like The Royal Family, uh, which is a British uh, sitcom. But you've chosen uh, to, uh, I guess, kind of... Um, How would we describe them? You know, a quite a sort of popular, almost kind of throwaway show in terms of man versus food. And then a much more kind of formal, um, you know, great renaissance of television drama and the kind of golden age of television um, in Hannibal. And I'm fascinated by like why you chose these two examples um, to kind of sit alongside a discussion of um, eating on television, but also kind of what they tell us about the story of living with television.
1: Sure. I mean, yeah, it does seem a bit weird as well when, like, you know, because I'm a vegetarian as well. And both shows are very much about eating meat and whether that's animal meat or human meat. Um, so it, it probably seems a little bit odd that as a vegetarian, I chose to, to, um, to write about those two shows. I mean, the short answer is that they were the shows that I was watching when I was starting to think about this chapter, which was really about thinking about when I'd started to think about what the structure of the book might be you know that it was going to be based around particular practices that are often centered around the home so um, you know caregiving and receiving um, and that, that kind of sleeping and, and going to bed and that eating seemed like a really good practice to to look at so in short they were the programs I was watching at the time and but also sort of beginning to interrogate, well, why did I enjoy watching these programs? What was it about the eating on screen that I enjoyed? Alongside beginning to think about what it means to eat with television as well, as, um, as I guess a form of co-consumption, you know, consuming the the television text and consuming, you know, the the, the food in front of you as well, and, and what that might mean and how one might disrupt and disturb the other. Um, so sometimes things can be paired very well together and sometimes they can really um, kind of disrupt the experience of, of viewing or eating as well. So I thought it was really interesting. And then when I began to investigate a bit of the literature around eating, Um, and uh, particularly the kind of social and health sciences approaches, which were always kind of worrying about the impact that television viewing might have on consumption of food, that it would lead to mindless eating, for example. So there was a kind of real interesting inverse there of anxieties that that have often circulated in relation to television that the domestic contest will distract from the proper you know viewing of of the television text instead so it was really interesting to me how those kind of economies of um attention and distraction were was in there in the writing about eating as they were in in the kind of writing about television um and I think also about eating as well. It was one of those things that when I talked to people about the book, it was one of the first things that they, um, kind of brought up when I was going, well, I'm writing this book and it's about how we use television in our everyday lives. Um, and about particular practices in the home, people would almost immediately start to talk about their, their use of food and eating and, and how they eat alongside television and what they eat and when they eat and those kinds of things. So it was something that I think really opened up a lot of really interesting avenues for me. And again to go back to man versus food, um a really ambivalent show as well. That some people find it quite appealing um, the the images of of um, Adam Rickman eating you know, excessive amounts of food, that the food is there to look delicious. Other people find it really disgusting, both kind of morally and in terms of, you know, the effects of the show as well. So I think that kind of really ambivalent, affective terrain of eating on television is interesting in terms of thinking more broadly about television as this quite um, multiplicitous and messy and ambivalent and complicated um, uh, textual form as well. Um, And one thing I would just say is that when I was... I have taught this a few times um, to, to students. And one of the things that we would do, these little like eating experiments in class, where I would select particular programs and, and I would ask them to bring in some food and that we would eat with these programs. And just to think about that experience of co-consumption and how one can affect the other. Um, so I would I'd ask them to bring in like a kind of yogurt or some kind of yogurt dairy alternative um this was always voluntary i wouldn't force them to do it um and we would sit and we would watch a bit of um nigella making some kind of delicious ice creamy treat to eat so everyone's tucking into their yogurts and then i would switch the channel and and it would move over to um dr pimple popper Um, (laughs) and they'd be there eating their yogurts and all of a sudden it would be like oh my god i can't possibly eat this um because of the, the obviously the synergy between the what what happens on Dr. Pimperpopper and and what they're consuming. So it was just a really fun experiment in which to think about those, how one affects the other and, and that kind of um, cacophonous realm of, of sensors and affects that, that television and, and eating with television can produce.
0: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioural health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices I mean, right the way through uh, the book, but also in, in terms of all, all of the things we've, we've been discussing, is this idea of, of home and the kind of um, the practices of um, watching television in the home, but also how home is represented on television, and, and this again reflects the kind of autobiograph autobiographical and auto-ethnographic uh, approach of the book and the last chapter tries to think through this uh, really by thinking about a place um, and how a place is both represented and experienced and and, and you draw on the show uh, Last Tango in Halifax which is a, a British uh, drama show but is also you know very kind of clearly rooted in in, in a particular part of, of the north of England and, and I'm interested in why that show kind of matters to you sort of personally why it's a good example um of how home is represented and again you know to, to pick up on some of the other themes is kind of messy ambivalent contested and complicated
1: yeah i mean last tango in halifax um i think again again it's kind of what i was watching um when i i think. Like, can't remember when the show started now, but I have a clear memory of being in Glasgow and, and watching the first series and being feeling very, very homesick. Um, and it was something that I'd had conversations with my friend Alison Pierce, who's also an academic, and she at the time was living in Newcastle. And both of us are from the sort of Leeds. Bradford area um, in uh West Yorkshire and we're both feeling homesick and so we talk a lot about that experience of of homesick and nostalgia that the show kind of generated but I think it took me a a long while to work out why I found it so effective and what it was about the program and also how how I might incorporate it into the the kind of structure of the book or the, the kind of ideas within the book um because the other chapters are very much focused on particular kind of practices in the home, whereas this the, the sort of final chapter is more about the experience and the idea of home, what home is, and again, how it can be very ambivalent and home can often be very disorientating. So it was kind of about thinking about that relationship between, I suppose, where you are and where you're from and how those two things might not always align and that, how that can create some kind of feelings of disorientation and and then in particular how television mediates or can mediate that relationship and how we can rub up against um, our images of home or the, the places we think of as home on television when we're not there and what that might mean to be both here and there, near and far, home and away at the same time. So kind of investigating those kind of experiences and, and really, again, Last Tango in Halifax was the programme at, at that time that... Um, being set in Yorkshire kind of was was and being watched in in Scotland there was all those those images and the landscapes in particular that reminded me of home and and the places that I wished to be however when I went back to when I would drive back to Yorkshire I would I'd never feel quite at home there either um so it was it was partly about capturing that that sense of homesickness and and disorientation um yeah and that and that that I think television has always been, I think as Mimi White writes, that kind of relationship between two points, possibly even more points. Um, And so it becomes an interesting medium through which to to investigate that that experience of kind of homesickness.
0: At The very end of the book, you you talk a little bit about the pandemic and and the point you just made there actually about television and and two or or multiple points um, really kind of struck me actually as, as a question about has the pandemic kind of changed our relationship to television in some ways you know we might think of you know kind of relying more on television or television offering kind of more potential more possibilities but at the same time you know we face a very different kind of television landscape um, as compared to the ones where you know maybe you kind of grew up with and, and the television having a a certain kind of like rigid or, or set structure and i'm interested in in precisely that actually you know what does the pandemic kind of tell us almost sort of theoretically about living with television now
1: mm-hmm. i think it's been really interesting um aside from the you know the fear and the anxiety um that that came with living through um the first lockdown And that's the bit that really I kind of focus on in in the epilogue of of the book. I think it's really kind of intensified that relationship of living with television, you know, so many people relying on television when they when they couldn't leave the home to to replace, you know, social connections, to replace activities like education or religious worship that they might might have been doing outside of the home. And I think for a lot of people, I mean, as a television studies scholar, it's something I've always been obviously been very attentive to the role that television plays and its importance and its affordances within everyday life. But I think for a lot of people, it, that suddenly became much more visible that how much people were relying on television or sharing what they were watching on television through kind of platforms or particular um um activities like the kind of was it house party on netflix where you can sort of watch at the same time as other people so i think it really kind of heightened and made visible the experience of living with television and and how it how it sort of intertwines with our everyday lives but i think it also for me it also really resonated with the kind of early scholarship on television and that paradigm of of um on the one hand, television can provide us with a lot of security and a lot of comfort. Um, and Roger Silverstone writes about that kind of ontological security that television can offer by always being there again. But on the other hand, it's filled with anxieties, um, with risks, with you know um, traumatic, catastrophic content and, and images as well. So that that constant seesaw of emotions um, that television and perhaps broadcasting more in more general can can offer um you know that that there's always that fear of that breaking news moment and certainly anyone who's watching numbers and um and graphs you know go sky high during that that first wave you know it was really quite terrifying and i certainly opted in that in that period to to stop watching um television broadcast television and to watch more content that I could control so I knew exactly what to watch I knew exactly what what I was comfortable with watching so it was a lot of repeat viewing and certainly when I've talked to my Students as well, well, they've talked a lot about watching um, kind of older forms of television, like, um, you know, the kind of um, Friends, for example, that's been hugely popular or, or going back to kind of primetime serials and finding comfort in the kind of formula and the regularity of those kind of forms of television as well. So I think it's, it, yeah, lot, lots of ways in which the pandemic has revealed so much about the, the role of television um, in, in our culture and in, in our society. But also, I think it's also revealed that the broadcast television still has a really important role to play, but that it's not a case of, uh, of just moving, you know, a kind of unidirectional you know that was broadcast now we're in an era of digital or online tv but these practices are again are layered on top of each other that they're cumulative that they're we might be switching between all sorts of different kind of television practices in the home now um so it sort of adds to that that the kind of messiness um of television which again is some a, a kind of theme that reoccurs through the book and is again something that uh, i've always been really interested in too
0: is that something you're, you're thinking of in terms of future research or, or maybe another book project? Um, you know, the, the, There are so many questions that, that kind of come both from the contemporary moment, but also from some of the analysis that you, you offer in the book, um, or have you kind of um, settled your accounts with television and maybe thinking about something uh, completely different?
1: That's a really good question. I think, because, you know, when a book comes out, you, you know, you're meant to talk about it you're meant to share it with people. And I think there was a stage where I was a bit like, I don't, I feel a little bit like, like you say, I've settled my accounts and I'm not sure I've got anything else to offer. Um, you know, it's, it's been a long process writing this book and um, for various reasons. Um, but there are still questions that I'm really interested in. I'm still really interested in, um, questions around care. And, and I think that's particularly something that's obviously come up a lot in relation to the, pan, the pandemic, but right? the images of care, the, the value of care, um, care as a practice, as a part of an effective realm, as well as being also part of policy and part of television's policy world as well. You know, there's a lot of conversations a few years ago about duty of care, um, particularly in relation to kind of reality television. So that's, that's something I'm still really interested in investigating, I think, um, alongside um, beginning to do more work around kind of disability in particular and um, uh, thinking about... Um, children um with disabilities and children's media which is uh, an area that i've worked on outside of the book but that's obviously has a, a kind of um a strong presence in the book particularly through um alice's story so there are definitely threads that i'm going to pick up on in the future i hope